I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to Warriors Offcourt, the San Francisco Chronicles NBA podcast. I'm your host, Warriors beat writer Connor Letourneau, and today I'm joined by Warriors president Rick Welts. Rick is preparing to speak at the memorial service of late NBA commissioner David Stern on Tuesday at Radio City Music Hall in New York City. While getting his notes in order last week, Rick sat down with me at his Chase Center office to reflect on a man he considered a second father. We began our conversation by talking about how Rick received the invitation to speak at Stern's memorial service in Welch's very house in Palm Desert that Stern had major opinions about. I bought this house, which I never get to go to, uh, in 1995, and I was working at the NBA. And my best friend at the time's parents had a house a couple blocks away, and so I, I loved going to, to Palm Desert and mm-hmm. really, you know, had always, you know, I'd gotten acquainted with it and really liked it, and I ended up being able to afford to buy this little house uh, in Palm Desert. And it was... Right, it was like early in the calendar year, and we, we ended up, I guess, having our league meetings there that mm-hmm. uh, that year. Um, so Stern, everybody. Do you was, remember what year? What well, year? it must have been 1995. I, I, yeah. I, I wanted to look that up. I think it was the same year. We used to convene the whole league, like right. basketball, business, everything. In one yeah. place, we were at the Marriott Desert Springs. So he was going to be out there, and I, I'm like so excited. Like I, yeah. I have a house. Right. And uh, so I really I was so proud of it. I wanted him to come see it. Right. And so he's like, oh, okay, whatever. Was it all decorated and everything? No, it, just, it was in the state I bought it. Oh, okay. Uh, which was a, you know, grandmother had owned it. It had like seven different colors of wallpaper and <laughs> carpeting. And it was, yeah. It was horrible. Right. It was, a, it was uh, a bad grandmother's house. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I'm so proud of this. We get over there and it's like, here we are. And, oh, my God. He's bad. A half an hour just ridiculing everything about the house and telling me everything that had to right. be. <laughs> it was so perfect. Like, that, that was my life, right? So it was so perfect that I, that's and, the place I was. And you weren't insulted. You just kind of no, expected I, it. I, you know, I totally took the wind out of my sails and <laughs> probably over time did everything that he said should be done to the house anyway. But uh, just the fact that he could so take the air out of my balloon, you know, by, right. by my, my wonderful, you know, joyous moment was... Uh, Spent hearing all the things that were wrong with uh, my prized possessions. So, <laughs> right. To hear did news. you take any of his, his advice? Did you? <laughs> oh, I'm sure I did. I'm did sure you? I did begrudgingly, but I'm sure I did. So the house got renovated a couple of times, and so the house is looking good now. Yeah, and so you were there. You were at that house. So it's in that when at, you got at the that call. house, and I'm thinking like he was standing like right here, like telling me how. You know, that must have been a surreal moment. It was. It was like wow. Let's just go back to the beginning. Uh, what What are your what what were your first impressions of David? How did you get to know him? So I uh, was the PR director. I was the Raymond Ritter of the Sonics. Yeah. We won the 1979 championship. I'd only done it for two years. We yeah had the 78 mm-hmm. team that lost to Washington and the 79 team that won the championship. And there were, I think, 12 people in our front office. Um, and I just 
didn't think it was a career. You know, I just didn't really see that uh, that there was a career in the NBA. So I had left two weeks after we won the championship um, and joined a guy who uh, a guy by the name of Bob Walsh, who had come up from uh, L.A. with Bill Russell and was kind of our de facto uh, business and general manager while Bill was in that job with the Sonics. Um, and he had started a combination like PR event political consulting athlete representation firm uh, mm -hmm. in Seattle. So I joined him. I left the Sonics and joined him. And uh, it was great. I was getting to, it was all about sports. We were trying to help companies who were, you know, spending money in sports in Seattle. He was representing some athletes. He represented, yeah. you know, Jack Sigma and Jim Zorn when he was quarterback of the mm -hmm. Seahawks and had uh, uh, probably a couple dozen clients that he was doing work for. But my focus was really on kind of things related to the Sonics. We got the rights to publish a game program. We saw, Seattle actually had the first pay cable uh, product I think ever out there. We called it Sonic Super Channel, and we launched yeah. it. You could watch every, you could buy every game of the season and uh, get it through your cable distributor. It was kind of before its time. That would be. yeah. So I just come back to work from work uh, or from lunch one day, and you know I have to explain to people what the pink while you were out slip uh, looked like. <laughs> yeah, uh, somebody they like post yeah, No, they're just you know, these little pink slips where okay. when you're not in the office and somebody calls the office, they write down the phone message. And there's one sitting on my desk. Somebody I didn't recognize the name had a NBA two one two area code. And uh, called the guy back, and he introduced himself as David Cern. Said he, uh, you know, he had recently been put in charge of, of starting to build a business organization mm -hmm. at the NBA. I mean, literally, all the NBA did prior to that was schedule games. They sign didn't referees. have a business. There was no business uh, structure, and he'd been. That's crazy. His title was uh, executive vice president for business and legal affairs. So he was running the legal department, but he was also. Uh, starting to build uh, a business. And uh, so he said, why don't you, you know, I heard about you, why don't you come back and visit me? So I got to, you know, got a plane ticket to New York, got to stay one night in the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. You know, That's I think nice. I've been to New York twice in my life. Walked over to the Olympic Tower, and we had like a 30-minute meeting that went probably three hours. And, uh, you know, I think it was incredibly enjoyable, his you know, energy and vision yeah. for what the NBA could become was was spellbinding, um, and I think we just stayed in touch for the next few months, and I ended up going back to work there. That was like in uh, November, and I ended up going back, to going, moving to New York uh, in May the following. So, year, what was your job title? So I was time? the director of national promotions. Okay. And literally, I was the very first person ever to go out and talk to companies about investing marketing dollars in the NBA. We didn't have that function. That's crazy. I know it's crazy. <laughs> he had spent did a you? Lot of time. Did you? Did it feel crazy at the time that they well, hadn't did, had that? I, I, yeah, a little bit. But yeah, I had. You know, my my perspective was so Seattle focused. Like the NBA was the biggest thing in the world. Like everybody, yeah. you know, in the city of Seattle revered the Sonics. It was the most important sports property there. You know, it was, it was, we won a championship. We owned the town. People would. This is, do, was this before the Mariners came? Yeah. 
Well, no, at the end, no, the Mariners, the Seahawks and the Mariners actually uh, were there but had had no They success. were the pilot, the Seattle Pilots for I like one the year. Seattle Pilots game. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I still can't uh, forgive Bud Selig. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so here I am, and it was, it was a, you know, the initial couple months was a horrible experience. I mean, I had, if I'd had a round trip ticket, I would have gone back because you know, the NBA's uh, reputation uh, as a league and, and non-reputation as a business organization was, it was just awful. It was like I would, you know, be call, trying to get appointments with these agencies or companies and get, you know, laughed off the phone, you know. Mm-hmm. You know who in their right mind would have invested, you know, hard-earned corporate dollars in the NBA? Um, and, you know, he... We had like three people in licensing that were licensing products mm-hmm. that we'd never had a licensing program right. to create apparel and merchandise before. Um, he'd hired Brian McIntyre as our PR lead at that point. He'd hired uh, a guy named Bob King, kind of a legendary guy, to start something called Team Services. Bob was this crusty old guy who had been at the Denver Nuggets forever, and he was going to come in and get the teams to cooperate in sharing information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there was me, who I was supposed to go out and you know talk to these corporations, and I was having, I mean, beyond no luck. It was like I can't even get an appointment. It was <laughs> so depressing. I'm like, the NBA is like the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. Turns out, not. Why, why? So they just didn't take it seriously? As a- No, I mean, we were behind, I mean... Baseball probably was at the top of the heap then, closely followed by NFL, college sports. Hockey was, like, viewed as head of us. Like, we were not on in the food chain of, of even the most remote interest from companies. To, to and, and what – so what Stern and I sat down and did was make, make a list. Like, what's our wish list of companies that, you know, if we could have the NBA associated with those companies, that would – frankly, mean more to us than it would to them. And it was McDonald's and Coca-Cola, uh, Budweiser, um, but we would take Miller. Um, and I thats I just started going to Atlanta, knocking on doors at Coca-Cola and going to Oak Brook, Illinois, and knocking on doors at McDonald's. And, you know, the genius that he had and what he, you know, well, first of all, I hit, I was a perfect candidate for him amongst this few people he was hiring because mm-hmm. I was passionate about the NBA check. Uh, I was young, check, and I was cheap. Like we Young and cheap, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We we uh you know, to this day or to the last time we met, still have the, we had, we'd have the same conversation every time we'd see each other that he, uh, I'm convinced he paid me $47,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he swears it wasn't a penny over $42,000 a year <laughs> that he negotiated me down from that. It's not true. Yeah. It was, I mean, that was more money back then, but. <laughs> when I got my first uh, check and figured out how to pay my rent in my studio apartment in Manhattan, it didn't seem like, it turned out it wasn't very much money. So. And, that, and that, especially given your responsibility, I mean. <laughs> it's an important job that you had. Uh, how old were you at the time? 28. He was so able to convince all of us that if we would quit talking about, quit focusing on the problems and the issues uh, that the NBA was having and started telling the story about what we were going to be, we weren't, but what we were going to be, that 
we could get people's attention. And he was right there, had my back on every every time we got a crack in the door, he would he would show up, you know, with me to a meeting. Was he kind of the muscle? Like the guy who was he was a a a very compelling guy always in terms of his uh, feelings about what the NBA could become and it and it worked, started working. And we ended up doing everything we said we were going to do, which was really important, exceeding anybody's expectations about what we would would actually deliver. Um, what was your who was your first big catch? Uh, funny, well, it was Fuji Film. Kodak wouldn't talk to me. So <laughs> it was Fuji Film and I think I got him to uh pay a little rights fee and spend $5,000 on each team, which you know, back in the day was was actually real money. Yeah. Uh, that was it. But the real the the breakthrough and we started to have a little success. Schick, uh, because Gillette wouldn't talk to us. So we, could, like ne- we could never get the main brand. Yeah. And, but over time, uh, you know, we got the Coca-Cola and we got the McDonald's. How long did that take? The Budweiser. It, you know, it was four or five year process. Um, you know, and for me, the big, the big uh, kind of game changer was the All Star Weekend in 1984. Where was that? Again? Was, it was in Denver, and I would I was so to, so to set the scene. Larry O'Brien, uh, David had been elected commissioner. Larry O'Brien was still the commissioner, and at the end of the All Star Weekend, uh, David Stern was going to become commissioner in February of 1984. So, who? What was David's job title when you when you first hired you? Uh, executive Vice President for Business and Legal Affairs. Okay, is that was that like a number number two? Well, no, we had a deputy. We had a deputy. Okay, there was a deputy commissioner, commissioner too. So okay, I, but it was he was probably maybe number, number three. three. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, so, you know, he had been talking to us uh, about kind of the things he wanted to do, uh, changes he wanted to make, and a lot of it was about embracing our history. Uh, and about capturing it for the future, right? right? We had no photo library. We had right. no video library. Uh, other people owned all of our anything that existed. Other people owned, uh, and he even before he became commissioner, you know, convinced every team to buy a three-quarter inch cassette uh, recorder. So uh, the games that were televised, we could at least have. A video record that we would put into a library uh, and that was like a big big landmark thing yeah. for the owners to agree to have you know have every team buy a right. videotape recorder and start to record the games right. and send them by whatever system we used back then there was no fedex there. so when you were reaching out to these companies the the de- the, the deals you were t- discussing with them they they varied right in terms of what exactly the scope of them sure. were and oh I yeah mean, there was and the amount of dollars involved i mean there were in the you know hundreds of thousands of dollars you know? right and uh what was the biggest one uh, I don't at know. that time you know i did it for such a for quite a while um I, I, uh, mcdonald's sure when we finally got mcdonald's i'm sure it might have been seven figures but barely if it yeah. was um and i and I, but i but so we're like I'm listening to the stuff he's talking about, capturing our history. We hadn't embraced our history at all, and I'm sitting at home, totally depressed, watching a uh, Major League Baseball old timers game on television, uh, and uh, some 
65-year-old guy gets up and hits a ball over the, I remember it was in Washington, D.C., hits a ball over the outfield fence, and there's the Cracker Jack sign sitting there, and it was the Cracker Jack old-timers game. And I'm like, okay, that's kind of interesting. Uh, and then right about that time, Carl Shearer, who just passed away too, um, Carl was the president of the ABA uh, Denver Nuggets and then president of the NBA mm -hmm. Nuggets, and we were going to Denver. So Carl came to town in November so we could start to plan for All-Star, which was going to be in February, which mm -hmm. is hysterical. Mm -hmm. like we were having our first meeting in November to talk right. about All-Star. But all All-Star was we, we had a really bad banquet on uh, everybody – Flew in on Saturday. We had a really bad banquet on uh, Saturday night with a bad comedian, and then we would play the All Star game on Sunday, and everybody went home on Sunday night. One hotel, um, and uh, so Carl comes to town and says, "You know, it would be really cool um, if we could uh, honor kind of our ABA heritage by having a slam dunk contest at halftime of the game." Denver was the uh, Location for the infamous ABA All Star Game uh, Slam Dunk Contest in 1976 with Dr. J. Nichols Arena, where Dr. J did something no one ever yeah. seen before. He ran yeah. the length of the court, jumped up, you know, took off from the free throw yeah. line, and I think beat David Thompson in the yeah. finals. Uh, the legend of Julius and the ABA was born. Um, it'd be really cool if we could do that at halftime. So, was that halftime of the actual game? No. So, okay. uh, Carl, like, you know, CBS has got this other programming. They have no interest. So it's like, Carl, it's not going to work. Like, you know, CBS isn't going to do that. Um, so I went home and started thinking about it. And, you know, so I went to David and said, I got it. Okay, so how about we do like a second day? We do like a Saturday. And we can do an old-timers game. You know, we can, you know, all these players that we've turned our backs on uh, after they left the league and such a big part of our history, we could invite all of them to come play a basketball game and we could do a slam dunk contest. And, you know, he was like, yeah, like I, I think, I think we got something here. So we trotted down to the commissioner's office, Larry O'Brien, and it was like, mm, you know, this isn't going to happen. No interest whatsoever. Yeah. Okay. So tail between my legs went back and, a couple days later, Stern walks in my office and says, Commissioner says, uh, if you promise not to embarrass him on his last week in office and it doesn't cost the NBA a penny, you can run with this. Like, so with that great endorsement, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, okay. So, uh, so, But David was the one who kind of got it over the... Oh, totally. I have no idea what conversations yeah. took place between the so two he, of them. But, but he, he was but obviously he, good at that. He, he came back and said, okay, commissioner says you can do it. So went to work with the staff in uh, Denver, and and uh, we made our, you know, I made a deal. We had to get them there, so I made a deal with American Airlines and Schick. So if you look back at the old footage of the, mm -hmm. old, the first old-time, the Schick American Airlines old-timers mm -hmm. game. So American could fly them all in. Um, and Schick paid a fee to have their name on it. And then uh, we made our very first deal with Gatorade that at, around that for that event. Um, we never had a deal with Gatorade before. They were a small company in uh, Indianapolis at the time. Uh, so here we go. We've got a Gatorade slam dunk contest, and we've got an uh, old-timers game. And, uh, you know, it, it turned... Magical. It's so much better to be lucky than good yeah. because uh, the Brown Palace Hotel in, in Denver, the 
We actually had to get a few rooms in the second hotel, which we've never had to do before, but the writers and broadcasters, especially writers at the, in the lobby of the Brown Palace Hotel with Oscar Robertson over there and right. you know, John Havlicek over there and Elger Baylor right. over there and Oscar right. Robertson over there. It was like, holy cow, this yeah. is so cool. Like you had... You had story material for for weeks. Yeah, uh, we've never, and these guys were so excited to like have been included. And Julius Irving, and I don't know why, at the end of his career, agreed to uh, participate in the slam dunk contest again, which was really kind of it was super important to have it right. like that as as. So who won that year? So the fine it came down to uh, a rookie, Larry Nance. Crazy, his son is yeah. in the NBA uh, uh, against Julius Irving, and uh, uh, it could not have been more poetic justice. So Julius had his two little kids on the floor. ESPN, we talked ESPN into recording it the way they were going to broadcast it live, but they were going to record it, um, and they got this some great footage. If you go back and look at the broadcast, it's Julius talking to his kids and what should I do the next dunk? It was so cute. Um, so here are the finals, and uh, Julius, you know, stands up and does what everybody in that arena was hoping he would do. He did exactly what he did in the ABA contest. Mm-hmm. He walked, uh, you know, the other end of the court, came flying down. I think at that stage of his career, he probably took, you know, took off somewhere inside the mm-hmm. three-point line, dunked. Uh, but the, it was it was so symbolic. The rookie Larry Nance won. Uh, he, he, you know, Julius Dunk wasn't good enough, and, mm-hmm. and Larry Nance won. Uh, kind of symbolic passing of the torch. Right. Uh, equally symbolic Stern taking over from from Larry O'Brien. So he went from kind of the number three position to the number one position. Yeah, and the the uh, the media like fell in love with that Sports Illustrated. I think did seven pages. They'd never covered the All Star game before. Um, by the way, the old did time, that help him get the job, or was no, that no, already was that was already, already in place? He was going right? to take office the next yeah. day. Oh, okay, but all of a sudden it was like a, the new NBA. It was kind right. of like, but it's a great way to start. Amazing launch. For yeah, him on his first yeah. day in office, right? Uh, the next day, so it was. You know, it touched every theme that he wanted to touch. By the way, the old timers game, awful. The introductions were awesome, right? Yeah. You, these guys come out, yeah. and then you see these guys play basketball. Yeah, it's kind of sad. Good. And we did it about three years, and I think after the second or third ACL, we uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. decided that it probably wasn't showcasing the game quite the way that we right. did. So we ended up eventually replacing a three-point uh, contest. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, that that – that launched him, and he, as commissioner, had hired by then probably about a dozen young people who had been with him, uh, me for two two years, uh, others for maybe three. So he kind of had a, a group of people that he trusted to mm-hmm. create his administration and mm-hmm. his commissionership. So all of us kind of came along for the ride, me for the next 17 years. We'll have more of my conversation with Warriors President Rick Welts right after the break. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The, the Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. 
What what was David like as a as a boss? It it it, it evolved. Um, you know, I t- I'll you know tell the story. I'm sure you know about. He had a completely. I was the 35th employee of the NBA. I know because we got a hat that had our number on it. And okay. That included the mail room. That included wow. everybody that worked at the NBA. I was employee number 35. Um, and when I left in 1999, I think we had 1,100 all over the world. Um, but we had half of one floor, the 15th floor at the Olympic Tower. They still have that office space, but everybody fit in one half of one office <laughs> floor. Yeah. Uh, in the same building, the Olympic Tower. Uh, but but he had this ability to, have, to forge, people say this about Clinton too, like a completely, you felt a completely connected relationship and he had a different relationship, felt like he had a different relationship with everybody and he knew you well. Um, you know, even when I saw him in November, you know, he would talk about my dad and mother by their first names or my sister. Um, so you and took an investment in you as a person. Huge, huge. Um, and, and you know, the reputation for being this, like, raving maniac right. uh, was only occasionally true. And, but he had a different – he knew how to push each person's buttons. And he, he screaming at me, like, wasn't all that effective. So he really didn't do that. But he would know how to totally make me feel like I was the dumbest person on the earth. If, like how so? If he wanted to. Just, you know – he would he would put just push those buttons like yeah you know I wish I could depend on you to do this but clearly I'm going to have to yeah. take this over and get it done myself and then you would just eviscerate like, yeah. like you'd just be destroyed destroyed and you go home um, am I going to make it here is this really going to work yeah. and uh, inevitably for me at ten o'clock almost on clockwork my home phone remember when we had home phones maybe yeah not. I do but my home phone would ring and it would be him and he would had me on the phone for like half an hour talking about everything we were going to accomplish and you know what the world was going to look like so was he kind of like a workaholic did he work totally. all the time yeah i think so I yeah think so um worked really long hours. he wasn't he didn't get the office really early most of the time but he would stay really really late um and he expected that of a lot of the people that worked for him as well um but he would by the time we would be off that phone call I'd be so pumped up to come in the next day and run through walls for him and for the NBA. And he just, uh, that side of him doesn't ever really get told. Yeah. Um, and if anybody in the office had a family member that needed a, you know, a, had a medical issue or needed needed something personally, he was like quietly always the first person we'd all go to. And he would invest himself in helping. And that side of it, you never would see. Um, it got more frustrating for him as we grew uh, because he, he was the ultimate micromanager. I think he named his company. I think that whatever company he he had, <laughs> he, he was running at the time he died, uh, as micromanagement, I think, is one of the letters in it. And he prided himself in knowing everything about everything and expected you to know everything about your business. Um, and he... but. It, when we grew to a certain size, it became really hard for him to do that. I think that he's he went through a lot of reinventions mm-hmm. uh, as the leader of the league. And I think the first one was like coming to grips with the fact that I have to manage more than I can do and I I can't micromanage everything and know everything that's going on. Really frustrating for him. But he did it. He, he adopted that. Um, in those 
early, you know, late 80s, uh, we were on a tear. Like the league was, for the first time, really generating real revenues. Uh, television deals were getting better. Right. Business licensing deals were getting better. Our sponsorship deals were getting better. We never had time to have a budget. Like there was never a budget. There was just so much more money coming in this year than there was last year. Nobody had time to pause nice. and like write down, <laughs> write down a budget. It's all relative, right? Right. But the NBA had never, you know, been in this situation before. Um, you know, but then we continued to grow, and all of a sudden, uh, he had to learn how to manage the financial part of the business, too. He was not a financial executive. He was a brilliant marketing, broadcast, legal mind. Uh, but he had to reinvent himself again and actually begin to put some financial rigor uh, behind the business and start to run it like a business. Right. Uh, and so I'd say that's the second transformation. And even later than that, I would say, you know, when the when ownership started changing from uh, family-owned businesses, in effect, to really wealthy people who had very different expectations for the business, he had to evolve again. You know, yeah. turn in, transform into uh, you know somebody who could deal with a very different set of expectations and challenges with these new owners that were coming into the league compared to the, you know, Bill Davidson family who owned the Detroit Pistons for 25 years, right? right. So it was just a, the, the business pressures, as the su- success grew, the business pressures grew, the business discipline had to grow. Um, and he had to learn again how to deal with a whole new cast of characters than he'd ever done before. And I think that's kind of the miracle that he really did over 30 years reinvent himself three or four times. At the same time, the NBA was going from what it was when I got there to like, you know, being talked about in the same breath as the NFL. Later in our conversation, Rick Welts, who became the first openly gay sports executive in 2011, while he was president and chief executive officer of the Phoenix Suns, talked about how David Stern helped him through a difficult time of his life. When his partner passed away from complications related to AIDS in 1994, and how Stern was supportive when he decided to come out years later. And this was a time when I was completely in the closet. Uh, right. Nobody at work knew I was gay or acknowledged I was gay. Did they think he was anything. your roommate or was it like... But in New York's a funny place. You can be... Yeah. That you don't even... They would never you you never see anybody like you right. know or work with so you know nobody even knew he existed and uh, he fell ill on a Saturday he actually played tennis that day fell ill on Saturday took him to the hospital and died the following Wednesday so it happened that quickly wow. very very unusual so again it happened over a weekend he went to the hospital over a weekend Monday morning I felt compelled to like come into the office and. Uh, <clears throat> David actually wandered down and came into my office, and I just said, uh, you know, I've got a friend I feel responsible for, and I may have to take some time away. He ended up dying, like, on a Wednesday. Um, So I ran one little obituary and ad, or one obituary in the Seattle Times newspaper Mm -hmm. in Seattle. It's a time that that was our communication. Um, And just suggested that people who... uh, my one remember Arnie could uh, donate to a scholarship fund that set up at the University of Washington Architecture School um, where he graduated. Um, and, you know, didn't really think anything of it. Uh, went back for a little memorial service my friends and I put together for him in Seattle. Um, and on the, 
I had put a post office box for people to send donations. And mm-hmm. so on my way back to New York, I, I had picked up uh, all these envelopes. And on the flight back, I was opening these envelopes. And I come across one that says Scarsdale, New York. You know, they were all from Seattle, except like this one like from Scarsdale, New York. Open it up, and it's a you know it's a ten thousand dollar check from David and Diane Stern. And somehow, I still to this day don't even know. We never really discussed how he knew in 1994 that this had happened and how he chose to do this. And it was such a gigantic uh, gesture, you know. And you know now I'm going back. Like, what do I do? I got to go like acknowledge this somehow, right. you know. And, you know, people donate $100, $200, there's a $10,000 check. Um, so walked into his office and just said, hey, you know, uh, I'm back. Like, just wanted to say thank you. He's like, yeah, 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 you know, yeah, hey, yeah, 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 yeah. And we'll go on and talk about some work. So we never right. he didn't, he didn't really want to, yeah. talked about, well, he knew that I was, wasn't ready. He knew that I was, like, I, it was my choice to, like, construct my life the way I did. And he respected that I wasn't ready to, to have that conversation. So he, we did the guy thing, and, you know, we're off to go do business again. So that was, you know, for me, just probably the most amazing, you know, thing that he ever did, which told me, you know what, it's okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, I get, you know, I tear up whenever I talk about it because it was such a significant thing at the time. Right. And do you think that that kind of stuff is what ultimately made you comfortable Coming out? Yeah, that was good, but it was, you know, that was a lot of other things were going on in my life at the time uh, in 2011 when I did that. My mom had been diagnosed with lung cancer. Uh, My dad had already passed away. Uh, I'd had another, my my relationship after that one, uh, uh, breakup, um, I think in large measure, because I couldn't bring the most important person in my life into my work life when I, this one I was with the Phoenix Suns. and I just had decided it's time. But the but so I had gone to a guy by the name of Dan Cloris, who'd run a big PR agency in New York, and we had um, we'd used his firm, was called Howard Rubenstein Associates, before he started his own uh, during the Magic Johnson HIV announcement, um, and uh, they'd really helped us like navigate our way through that for the week we had leading up to Magic's announcement. And so this guy I really trusted, and we just had dinner with him one night in New York and just said, here's, like, I'm ready to, like, bring this into my work life. I I can do it privately. It'd be great. Or, you know, if you think you can do it a different way. If you think there'd be something gained if I could, I I just can't judge. Can I do some good if I did it a different way? And he just looked across the table from me and just said, hey, you know, if you're willing to do this one, I want to help. And second, I think it's like page A1 New York Times, mm-hmm. which I always describe in my oh shit moment. <laughs> what? Right. <laughs> but hooked me up with this guy, Dan Barry, who still writes. I, uh, I think Dan Barry's incredible. He's incredible. Yeah. So Dan flew out to Phoenix, and we uh, we started talking about, you know, how could this be, be the best story it could be? And we agreed, like, like nobody knows who I am. Like, they're, you know, it's, I'm corporate yeah. name on a list uh, but everybody knows who I know right, right. those are people I'd become close to so Dan said like if you could get you know Bill Russell and David Stern and, and people like that Steve Nash to tell your story those everyone will pay attention because those those are people everybody knows so that was the strategy behind that so going to David you know 
he was one, I think the second one, Bill Russell was the first one, so he met me really early, which he didn't like, because that was the only time he had available in, in his office in New York. Um, you know, and he was who he is, like, it's like, why, like, what's the big deal? Like, why is this, you know, I was asking him, would you help tell my story by talking to this reporter from the New York Times? I was like, well, yeah, but, you know, it's so ridiculous, this is a big story. <laughs> uh, what did you do, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, we talked about stuff, and I always just say at the end of the meeting, like, I got my first commissioner bear hug, you know? Yeah. And uh, so it, 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 I guess in some ways it made me know it would be okay, but I, uh, until these other events happened in my life, it still I wasn't ready to like take that step. But I knew he'd be incredibly supportive at the point in time he did his, you know, his thought leadership on on so many social issues and uh, political issues was so powerful that, uh, you know, I knew I knew where he stood, whether it was me or anybody else, that he would be right. incredibly supportive. Right. Um, so when he uh, fell ill, you know, had you had you kept much in touch with him since he retired from the NBA? Very much. You know, I would say the only we did have about a three month period where we didn't speak. And if you can remember back, I'll forget the year. Phoenix was playing San Antonio in the Western Conference Finals, and uh, we were about we were winning. We had one game five where in the last minute of the game we're going to go back to Phoenix for game six up three right. to two and we're going to be in the finals and win a championship that year and uh, Steve Nash got hip checked in the last minute of the game knocked off his feet into the scorers table and our guys Mari Stoudemire in particular jumped off the he'd already been out of the game jumped right. off the bench went onto the court and Stern suspended him for the next game and uh, we ended up losing game right. six, in game six, and then they beat us in game seven. And yeah, we had quite a quite a discussion about that ruling. And I I literally couldn't I, w- I didn't speak to him for like three months. That was the only time in our relationship uh, that we an expletive filled conversation. Oh my god! Yeah, uh, both ways. Was that on the phone or? Yeah, on the phone. It just seemed so unfair to me. The punishment didn't match the, you know. Right. The facts in my mind, and he disagreed with me. I was lucky enough, uh, which I'll talk about, you know, a month before this happened, I got to have lunch with him in the same restaurant where it happened. And uh, he was so himself, it was crazy. You know, he was just sarcastic and funny and excited about everything that was happening in his life, excited for the Warriors' success. He, uh, you know, he was just—he was just who we always had been. You know, it's just where, where was this? This was so it's a place called Brasserie Eight and a Half on Fifty Seventh Street in uh, in New York, and uh, it's kind of his lunch spot. Um, I come to know since yeah. that's, that's where this—you know—his brain hemorrhage happened too. So, uh, really amazing opportunity to have seen him like that. Just short. Yeah, he was doing well. It was great. Like, loving everything he was doing, working hard. He was interested in everything that was going on in the league. And I remember one of the things he told me is that he was so so proud of Adam and how Adam's, uh, you know, been the steward of the league since him. And he was, I mean, a little bit self-revealing, too. He said, you know, Adam handled the China thing so much better than I would. And I can see it. Like he, he's like, I would not have been able to resist like firing back. Yeah. You know, and Adam, 
he had the he had the, the discipline to like not do what I would have done, which <laughs> probably would have blown up right. you know, China for the NBA forever. Right, uh, right. Adam Hell, and he, you know he was a little little self revealing there. So so you saw him in November. November. Yeah, in November. And that was the last time I saw him. Yeah, never stopped. And he became the best broadcast executive in sports. Became the best marketing executive in sports, and uh, they didn't teach that at you know Rutgers or Columbia. That 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 he figured out on his right. own. Uh, so it's you know it's a it's he's got to be the most important person in the history of the league. That's, right? That was my first line. I would hundred uh, percent with all with all due respect to you know Michael Jordan or LeBron or Bill Russell. Uh, or Steph Curry, uh, you know, without him, we would not have anything that resembles the NBA today because it was just sheer will and, and amazingly unafraid. And, uh, you know, it, those who accused him of having the organization chart a little confused, he's supposed to be working for the owners. I think many yeah. times the way he operated, it appeared the he felt the owners were working for him, and if they liked yeah. it, they yeah. could find somebody else to do the job. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I think at that point in time, perfect match of person to opportunity i mean i can't imagine and and it just was we were just in miami monday and tuesday with adam uh for our sales and marketing meetings and it just struck me like how perfect he is for this moment and david like it was a great 30-year run but what adam's been able to do and his style that's so different and so collaborative right uh, we're in a couple meetings that i just I mean, I thought of David just thinking, like, there's no way David would have allowed this discussion to take place. Right. When Adam says, well, what do you guys, uh, you know, what do you think? Like, what should we be doing about this? Or how are you guys feeling about this? It would be like, you know, David would have been like, here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. So fall in line. Yeah. Adam, Adam, in a much more complicated time in business, like, is so more inclusive and so uh, willing to listen to a variety of points of view before for deciding what he wants to do. It's just, I think he's perfectly set for that time. And you give David credit But you that. needed David, oh someone like David, to get to this to point. To run through walls, like, uh, wall after wall after wall after wall after wall, and, and threaten teams and threaten people and not be afraid of anything to get to where he wanted to go. And, and that style, I don't think, could be so effective today. Our thanks to Rick Waltz for being so candid about his relationship with the late David Stern. Warriors Off Court is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is the editor-in-chief. If you like this show, we'd love it if you subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. Follow me on Twitter at con underscore cron and email me at claterno at sfchronicle.com. Support Warriors Off Court and a lot of great journalism with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.